listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. If someone made a movie about your life, what kind of movie would it be? Would it be like a, um, would it be like a comedy? Would it be one of, those, uh, one of those good cop, bad cop films? Would it be like some really bad 70s movie with like funky like bongo music in the background? Would it be one of those tearjerker uh, lifetime story of the week movies? Like what would it be? What would be the story of your life in movie form? We've been in this series uh, now. This is our second week in a series called Life Worth Watching. A Life Worth Watching. And we've just taken a look at this guy named Abraham from the Bible. And asked this question. How do you go from living a life where you're watching other people live to actually living a life that's worth watching? So we take a look at a guy's life who's totally worth watching, Abraham from the Bible, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis. And when you start in about chapter 12 of Genesis, you just see this story of this guy's life kick off. Uh, I told you last week that if you wanted to learn more about Abraham, uh, you could probably read in the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 25. It's the very first book in the Bible. So even if you don't know much about the Bible, just open it up, flip past all the like index, prelude, and all this stuff. Get to the book called Genesis and just read the uh, chapter 12 through 25. It's a pretty intense story. He lives a remarkable life. Honestly, if Abraham's life were made into a movie, it'd be pretty action-packed. It'd be, it'd be awesome. And so uh, check that out. Um, but we're in this series, and the question that we asked was, okay, he had a life worth living, or worth watching. How do we get to a place where we can have that same type of life, a life worth watching? And the answer came in the form of one word, faith. It, it's a life of faith, and faith is, I gave the definition last week, a good definition, not, you know, the end-all definition of faith, but a good definition of faith is to say, I know that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. That's faith. I'm confident that he's going to come through on his promises, and so we talked a lot about that. If you missed last week's talk, totally encourage you to go check it out. Uh, you can go to our website, jointheventure.com slash messages, and find our podcast there, and check into it, because to get the beginning part of Abraham's journey will really, really lead us forward with that. But I want to bring you up to, up to date where we've been. So last week, we were talking about Abraham, and, and we kind of talked about how Abraham kind of heard God, God's voice, literally calling him, saying, I want you to do this crazy, amazing thing. I want you to just pack up everything and everybody and move. And Abraham was like, where am I going? And God's like, don't worry. I'll show you. Total faith move. Okay, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you'll do what you say you're going to do. And how that came with a promise. God also promised him, if you will obey me and have faith in me, I will bless you with a son. Abraham was 75 years old, had no children he said, I'll bless you with a son, and through that son, I'm going to bless the entire world because I'm going to turn your name into a great nation that's going to change the world. It says, all people will be blessed through you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and whoever blesses you, I will bless, and all peoples will be blessed through you. This huge promise from God. So Abraham packs up, and he moves he moves and he takes his whole household with him. There's this guy named Lot that lives with Abraham, and Lot is actually Abraham's nephew. And Lot is apparently loves his uncle Abraham and says, listen, if you're going, I'd like to go with you. And so Abraham says, that's cool. And so where we find Abraham now is that he's on this journey, and he's kind of walking through land and space and trying to find out kind of where God wants him. And their people have settled in this region, and they've become pretty prosperous there. 
In fact, when we find Abraham in this region, I, I guess they've been there for many years, and now they've begun to grow, and their people have been to grow, their household has been to grow. Specifically, their herds have begun to grow because they're shepherds. And when we, when we jump into this part of Abraham's story, we find him in this place where there's kind of a division in the house. Abraham, who's the patriarch, the leader of this family, and Lot, who, though he is the nephew, does kind of have a name of his own among their family, come to a decision they have to make. What happens is there's so many sheep, so much livestock, that there's just not enough room in the good spot to feed all the animals and to water all the animals. So this dispute breaks out between the workers for Lot and the workers for Abraham. And they begin to fight, and they begin to quarrel. And Abraham basically says, listen, this isn't good. This isn't good. We can't fight over this. There's plenty of land. Let's divide the land in half. You take half, and I'll take half. Now, at this point, you would think, okay, you're Abraham, you're the patriarch of the family, it's your idea to go on this crazy adventure, but everybody's kind of following your lead right now, and so you, you, you think that if the land is there and you're going to divide it in half, wouldn't you think you probably would get to choose which side you want to take? I would. I mean, it seems logical. It's like, hey, dad, you choose, right? Uncle, you choose. Patriarch, older person, you decide first. I want to respect that. Abraham had every right to do that, but instead he does something a little bit different. He goes and he looks at all the land, and he says, okay, here, Lot, here's the deal. When we look at our land, it's obvious. There's a really good chunk of land. It's, it's, it's about half of it, man, it's, it's lush and it's fertile and it's got all this grazing pasture land. It's great. Then there's this other half that's not so good. It's kind of hilly and it's not really great for what we need it for. But like I said, we're going to divide it in half. And Lot, I want you to decide which half you want. That's what he does. Pretty, pretty amazing little gesture there. So we pick up um, in Genesis 13, 12 through 13, um, this is what happens. Lot chooses the land that he wants. But along with the land comes some problems. This is in Genesis, first book in the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's cool. We got it up on the screen behind me. It says this. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched their tents near Sodom, which was a city at the time. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Other places in the story talk about another city, kind of a sister city called Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you've heard of these. They're kind of almost mythical cities at this point in, 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 in storytelling, but this is where we find out about these cities for the first place. And what we know about them is that they were just full of wicked people who were sinning against the Lord. Now, with the fertile land that Lot chose comes this kind of trade-off. We've got to be close to Sodom and Gomorrah, which kind of comes with some dangers. You can imagine what they might be. The first danger, might not be the first one we always think about, but it's, it's a pretty big danger, is that they were in danger of compromising themselves spiritually. I mentioned last week that Abraham's people, they weren't necessarily like really deep in understanding who God was yet, but they had decided to take this path towards God. You know, they're like, we're, we're going to figure out who God is, we're going to live for him. And so what we find out is that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah are clearly not honoring God. And so... There comes this danger of being influenced by this people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens if we get too close? And what if our, what if our kids get involved with, with their kids? And what if as we grow up, we begin to kind of change what we believe and what we think? That's the first danger. The second danger is this. I, I want to point this out. When you got the good land, you're not the only one who wants the good land. Duh, right? It's the good land. And this is a time where a lot of people are agricultural and they're also uh, they're herdsmen. So when you got the good land with the good water and the good grass and everything, I mean, Everyone else is looking at that land too and going, what, what makes him think he can get this land? That's actually why war was invented, right? Because people want the good land. And so um, 
something happens. The second danger actually comes to, to pass where someone else wanted this land. Let's look, moving on in the story about a chapter later in Genesis chapter 14. It says, four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. And they also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And so now, we finally get to this point in our story where I want to kind of pick us up today. Now, they're being held hostage. Abraham's nephew Lot, whom I'm sure he loves very much, is being held hostage, prisoner, possibly in danger of death. And in the course of events, someone from Lot's camp, and we find out in chapter 14, escapes and comes to tell Abraham, Abraham, sir, Lot's family's been captured. Please come and help us. Now, you're Abraham, okay? What do you do? What do you do? Now, initially, your first reaction is what? Go save them, right? Go save them. Now, no big deal that it's four kings, and they probably have, like, armies and stuff. I'm just going to walk in the front door, like, knock, knock, knock. Look, uh, I need you to give me my nephew back, because that's kind of not cool when you took him like that. So, please, with the cherry on top. <laughs> like, you know, so we, we want to say, like, you should go get him, but what, how do you do that? How do you go and just, like, rescue somebody from being held hostage by four kings? So our initial reaction is, yeah, we should do that, but there's another reaction we could have. You, you know what just happened? Like, just a little while ago, Abraham said, Lot, look, I'm going to let you choose. I'm going to let you choose the land, right? You have the land. Knowing good and well, if you choose that land, you're going to be near Solomon and Gomorrah, and those people aren't really good friends with the other people, and you got the good land, and other people are going to want the good land. You choose, and then, then he goes and chooses the good land. And, you know, lately, my sheep have been getting kind of scrawny, and my men are having to work really hard to find water. I don't know, man. Lot, you made your bed, you lay in it, man. Like, you're over there, you kind of you shafted us, so pff, sorry, I guess I'll move on over and get this other land. And, and on the surface, I think we all would want to go, well, yeah, but it's Abraham. Like, he's going to do the right thing. I want to challenge your thought for a second. It's going to kind of be a big thought throughout the rest of our talk today. I want to challenge your thought that maybe our initial reaction would be to dive in and try to save somebody. Because that's not necessarily how we live our lives. We would like to think, well, they're the good people, so they're going to do the right thing. And we're the good people, so we're going to do the right thing. But let me just give you some examples. Here's a classic American example. Maybe you've heard this story. It was actually back in the 60s, but it's kind of come up in, in, in other cultures since then. Maybe you've heard of Kitty Genovese. I think that's how you say her name. Kitty, in the 1960s, she was actually mugged and murdered in, the, in New York City. And the story goes something like this. This, this poor girl, Kitty Genovese, was, was, uh, she's walking down the street, and some... some you know, muggers come up, and they jump her, and they start to beat her, and they try to rob her. And she's screaming for help and screaming for help, and then she gets away. But then they chase her down, and they, they tackle her again, and they begin to beat her again, and she screams for help, and she gets away. And it happens a couple times. And this whole, like, murder happens over the course of about 30 minutes. You can imagine that. Then the police hit the scene, and they walk up to the neighbors, and they interview people. And it comes to find out that there are, like, dozens of people who say, as eyewitnesses, yes, I heard, I heard Kitty Genovese screaming. Yes, yeah, saw the whole thing. Yes, yeah, but nobody did anything to help the girl. And so through the process of the trial, people are asking, like, what? what? How did you not help? And you know what the most common answer was? Um, 
I just didn't want to get involved. And I think that's seen true in so many other things in our life. The phrase, it's not my responsibility. Isn't that why we have police officers? Isn't that why there's uh, good people? (laughs) It's not my responsibility. Another example, a recent Gallup poll to talk about church. I mean, we're we're at church. And a recent Gallup poll revealed that only 10% of the average church-going people are actually involved in serving and volunteering at their church. Only 10%. Which means that 90% are completely content. I'm calling you out right now. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of you are here for the first time or whatever, but, you know, maybe you've been in church for a long time, and you're in that 90% who are totally content with just receiving. You know, I'll just get the lesson every week, and I'll just drop my kids off at child care, and I'll just assume it'll be a safe environment. And, but that, but that's, that's the mindset of the world we live in. Another example, there are people all around us in our neighborhoods all the time that are in need, who have needs. They need to be loved. They need to know about God's love. And, how often do you see them struggling and just go, I just want you to know I'm here if you need me. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But by and large, as a culture, we're a people who, we know what the right thing is, but we step outside and we go, well, it's not my responsibility. Don't they have systems for that? Doesn't the government take care of that stuff? Like, doesn't, isn't there a paid professional somewhere? It's not my responsibility. See, it's easy to look at Abraham's situation and think, okay, I mean, you're Abraham, your nephew's been taken away, obviously you're going to do the right thing. And in this situation, Abraham does. Let's pick out what happens. Uh, Abraham does react, and it's it's very decisive in Genesis chapter 14, starting in, in verse 14. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That was a bit of a plot twist for me. Uh, I didn't expect Abraham to have 318 trained men. Like I was thinking, he's like this. When I picture Abraham, I picture like this little old man. He's like hanging out with sheep, doing shepherd stuff. Like not have like a little small militia like in his kitchen. I, I don't know where they stayed. But anyway, so Abraham's got these 318 trained men. And, and he goes and he pursues this king. It says, during the night, Abraham divided his men and attacked them. And he routed them. And he pursued them as far as Habah, north of Damascus. You all know where that is, right? Habah, north of Damascus, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and all the other people. This is epic. Like, can you just take a second to take that in? That Abraham, his relative is attacked and and taken captive by four kings who probably have all kinds of armed guards and and men and, and troops or whatever. And he goes in with this convenient 318 people that are part of his huge household and they go Rambo style, action adventure style in and rescue lot. It's huge. It's major. And I look through this story and I just go, what do we learn from that? What do we learn about Abraham's life? Especially since last week I said, you know, if we want to go from living a life of watching other people to living a life worth watching, let's like look at the life of Abraham and see what we can learn. And so I look at this little scenario and something huge jumps out of me. There's a point here. There's a point here that I don't know that we grasp very often. And so this is a lesson that I want to take in today. This is the lesson. Abraham teaches us, it's not about you. Take that in for a second. It's not about you. And I'll say it to me, Chris, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's, 
it's the opposite of what our world teaches. You know, our world gives us this great platform to build ourselves up, and we say, you know, it's all about you. It's all about your, your self-esteem and your self-awareness and your self-talk and your self-reliance. It's, and social media gives us this platform to feel like superstars, and, 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 and we can blog, and we can have our own websites, and we can publish our own books, because in, in the world, we feel like it should be all about me. We can have websites that are all about me, 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 the me monster. But the truth is it's not about you. It's not about me. And I wonder if the reason that so many of us, we feel like our lives are so boring and mundane and not going anywhere, maybe because we believe that it's all about me. And nothing's happening because it's all about me. And I'm like, why is nobody watching my show? Why is nobody paying attention to what I'm doing? It's not about you. Listen, if a person at work they kind of hurt your feelings, right? They, they, they did something. They hurt your feelings, and you're angry, and they didn't even apologize for it. You know what? It's okay. Because it's not about you. <laughs> Sorry they did that, and they should apologize. That would be the right thing to do, but what makes you think that they have to do right by you all the time? Wow. It just reverses the gears in your head, doesn't it? And maybe your spouse, your spouse, he or she as just not meeting your needs. And, man, they're, they're just not as cute as they used to be, to be real honest. And it's okay. It's cool. It's funny. But you know what? It's okay. It's not about you. Marriage is not about you. And then when anyone told you that, they, they lied. And they probably weren't married very long. But they probably were very married many times. Because it's not about you. And on and on it goes, maybe you got a chance to advance your career, but it would kind of take, you like kind of cut some corners and kind of stab some people in the back, and that would really get you up in the world, but don't do that. This is not about you, and, and if you're single, all the single ladies, all the single fellas, maybe you recognize you got, um, you got needs, you know what I'm saying? You got needs, and, the, and, and especially those of you who have chosen to to be Christians, and you said, I'm going to live my life for Jesus, I'm going to do things the Jesus way, and, and you're dating this, this, this guy or this girl, like, and, and they're real nice, and they're a good Christian person, and it turns out they, they got needs, too, you know what I'm saying? And so it turns out you guys could kind of meet each other's needs, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, but you don't do that. That's not what culture teaches us, but you don't do that. Why? Because if you have decided to live for Jesus, you said, no, you know, I'm, I'm letting down my old self, and I'm going to stop disappointing you, God, and I'm going to go by your rules, and I'm going to do it your way because I realize you see things better than I see them, and I'm not going to do that. Why? Because it's not about me. And here's the thing. We talked this, about this last week, and, you know, uh, one, one way that we really focus on ourselves is with our, our resources and our money, right? And did you know, this is for those of you who are like, are doing your best to live for God right now, and I just want you to know, did you know that when the Bible talks about your money, it's just this concept called first fruits. God wants your best. In fact, there's also this principle called the tithe that says God wants you to take 10% of your income and give it back to the work of God's kingdom. And that's hard to swallow. And you're just like, wait, why would he ever want me to do that? Because I got things I want to buy, and actually I'm a little tight on my bills right now, and to be honest, I don't really want to do that because... It's okay. You do it anyway because it's not about you. And, and I mentioned last week that when we talk about money, like I'm going to be real direct but real specific. I mean real careful when I talk about money because I know that's one thing that we say. We want to be church people who don't like church. And when people talk about money at church, people are like, ah, ha, ha, gotcha. 
That's exactly why I hate church. No, God talks about money a lot, but we need to talk about it in a healthy way. And it's cool that when it comes to our money, that's actually one of the first places we can begin to understand faith, which, by the way, is what Abraham teaches us is the way we live a life worth watching. And we realize it's not about me and what I had planned with my finances. And on and on it goes. Maybe you realize that God wants you to be involved in serving with some kind of ministry, either uh, serving at Venture Church and working with the children or working with the city team, which is a great thing we just talked about earlier, or maybe just on your own. Like, I want to get involved in some organization that loves people and helps people like God wants me to. But then you're like, that's like uncomfortable, and it takes up some of my time. And honestly, I'm kind of busy right now because I got my kids in like 19 different uh, sport clubs and, and all kinds of activities. And so, like, really, that's kind of busy. But you know what? It's okay because you'll rearrange because it's not about you. I want to unpack that not about you concept just for a few minutes if I could. Because, man, it's something that is sh- it has shaken my life to the core. And, and it's changed me. The amazing thing about God, there's a lot of things that could be amazing about God. And there are. Like, like one thing is that he's all-powerful. That's amazing. He's all-knowledgeable. That's amazing. But I would expect God to be all-powerful and, and all-knowing and all, all kinds of other stuff. But there's this thing about God that really amazes me. You know what really amazes me? Is that God is the most humble. God is the most humble. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like, you would expect, if it could be about anybody, I say it's not about you, it's not about me. If it could be about anybody, it should be about God. God could be like, yes, it is about me. Welcome to my show. Like, but that's not how God lives. That's not how God presents himself to us. That's not what we see in the Bible. Instead, what we see a God of God is a God who says, it's not about me. I want to be humble. I want to serve. It's amazing that God is more humble than me and more humble than you, even if you happen to be a very humble person. Check out this verse. It's in Philippians, which is in the New Testament. The New Testament is a tar- part of the Bible that talks about Jesus and his teachings in the church. And so it's near like the last third of the Bible. And this is a book called Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 5 through 8, it says this, Your attitude should be as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. By the way, this is one of the places in the Bible where we learn that Jesus is God. Jesus says it himself, and then throughout the teachings about Jesus, we learn, you know, when God becomes human, that's Jesus. And so Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. Like, oh, I'm not going to let go. Like, he's like, I'm not going to just hold on to that, but... Instead, he made himself nothing. And taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human form and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, God in the flesh, humbled himself and he set the bar for humility. He says, you, your, your attitude should be just like mine. And I'm, I'm humble. It's amazing. There, there's this one point in Jesus' life, and it's in Mark chapter 10. He says this, uh, Mark 10, 45, he says, I have, not come to serve, to, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just say things idly. We see it all through his life in the Bible. Like, for example, in John chapter 13, we get this really cool picture. We get this set up where, first of all, we learn this, that God has given Jesus, because they're the same person, all the authority over all things. Jesus is like, I just want to let you know, I am all-powerful. I am all-knowing. I have all power, all strength. And, and j- right after that, check out what Jesus does. This is in verse, thir- in verse 4. 
It says that then Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and he wrapped the towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around, his, around him. Jesus was giving all, had all the power of God, but yet he takes the time to get down on his hands and knees and scrub these nasty, dirty, smelly feet of his followers. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to show, listen, there's nothing that's below me. I'm willing to serve you. And then he says, I want you to go and do this too. You need to serve. Jesus came to serve and he's coming. his coming to serve was not an exception. He, he did that because that's, that's who God is. And that's what God does. The Bible says that whoever is first will be last. Whoever is last will be first. Which uh, sounds cool in theory, but not cool when you're in like first grade and you really just want to get the peanut butter and jelly sandwich first. Because it's like, well, but if I'm last, I might not get one. But that's kind of how we think. But that's what the Bible says. It's kind of this upside down life of Jesus. Like you've got to humble yourself. And, and the thing is, the Bible says that if we humble ourselves and become servants, that God will exalt us or lift us up. He'll raise us up and God will reward us for serving and being humble. And, and when people hear that, they kind of think of it at like, Kind of like a spiritual J-curve. Do you know what a J-curve is? I got a picture of one. It's a mathematical term. So, you know, there, there's like four people in here who care. The rest of us are like, I just trust the bank. Um, <laughs> but so you got um, this J-curve. And, and it means this. Like you start here at a point, And then you lose value for a little while. But then you hit kind of bottom. And then you begin to rise. Like exponentially. Bam. It's the concept. We get this phrase, you got to spend money to make money. You see that? I mean, you got you to invest it's going to cost you, but it's going to be worth it. And sometimes we feel this way about God, and we're like, this, this is how it goes down, right, God? So I, I'm humble, and I serve a few times, so I'm not going to go help, like, nourish and see, pack some meals, and I'm going to come do a thing at the YMCA, and like, I'm going to help, help my church, and I'm going to go, like, I'm going to give, give, like, 50 cents to a guy with a cardboard sign. And I'm going to, like, I'm going to serve, and, and I, but I'm going to get to this point where I've just served all i got to serve. And then God's going to exalt me. He's going to lift me up, and then I'll never have to serve again. And then people will be like serving under me forever, and they'll be my footstools. I'm going to be careful and delicate how I say this, but I, I, this is what I see in many churches from the leadership of the churches. You see a lot of times people who are in leadership in churches often get exalted to a point where they, they're living this, this lifestyle that they never have to come back down. But that's not what Jesus teaches. In fact, Jesus says, it's actually while you're down there that you're doing what I called you to do. So the concept of the reward for serving is getting to serve and getting to see lives changed and getting to see people lifted up out of where they were. Beautiful concept, and Jesus exemplified it. And it's this idea that says, life isn't about me. It's about giving my life away to others. So let's go back to Abraham. Okay, so Abraham, there's a lot we can learn from Abraham here. But, but I think the big thing that we're learning is that it's not about you. Because what we see with Abraham is we see, first of all, this was a thing that Abraham had no idea was going to come back to bite him. He goes to Lot and he says, listen, uh, you can choose the land. Choose whichever land you want. So in that little gesture, he said, it's not about me. I want you to have the best thing. And, well, you know, parents, we do that for our kids kind of thing. Like, you know, it's, it's a little bit extra food. You're hungry. Okay, you, just, you eat the food. Whatever. Like, we do that kind of stuff. He does that gesture, but then the big thing happens. Lot gets taken and he's like, okay, it's not about me. But, but here's, here's the, the, 
the pivotal point. Because what was it that was allowing Abraham to cross over and do the thing that was not about him? And I think the word is courage. It takes courage. It takes courage to step over that little boundary where we're uncomfortable. And the reason, courage means, if I had to give a definition, maybe courage is like that something else matters more to me than me. Think about that definition for courage. Something else matters more to me than me. We see the fingerprint of God shining through all of us when there are big tragic events. Think back to like 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina or I could list a number of tragedies that have happened throughout the world. And you see regular, everyday, average people doing extraordinary, selfless acts of courage. They're charging into burning buildings to rescue people that they don't even know, right? And they're giving away things so that other people can, can thrive, and that's courage because you're saying, you know, that other thing matters more to me than me right now. And I love that because it's kind of like the fingerprint of God shining through. Like people who don't even like care about God, they just, they act out selflessly in humility and through courage. And, and it comes out on the other side that they've done a great thing and they've made the world a better place. And you know what? Those of us who are Christians, those of us who have been called to a, a, a life of living for Jesus, it's a life of courage. Where every decision we step back and go, I got a choice here. It's either all about me or it's not about me. Those two choices could be called love or selfishness. And I've got to have courage to make the right decision. And so as we kind of wrap up the day, it, the question comes to mind, like how, okay, I get it. And, and actually, we live in a very uh, help other people oriented society, don't we? That's good. I mean, we got like a different color ribbon for every minute of the day to talk about all the things that we support and we want to make a better world. It's great. I love it. But how do you get that place where you have actual humility? And I think the answer to that is probably this. It's just my experience. The way that you become more humble is this. You do humble things. You do humble things. You, you like, you just go ahead and clean the toilet at the office. Like, it's nasty. Someone needs to clean that. Oh, I'm in the bathroom right now. I could probably manage that. <laughs> And you say, there's nothing that's below me. You're at your home, and, 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 and the baby diaper needs to be changed. And you don't just like, honey. And you don't, don't act like you don't smell that. Like, just get up. Go change the diaper. Do humble things and back down. Because here's the thing. A lot of times when we want to become more humble, maybe you've been here before, where you're like, I want to do better at this. And so we begin to pray for humility. And I just want to kind of point this out. God, I, I, you, correct me if I'm wrong. I'd love to know. I, I, I love being wrong because then people can help me be right. But, but if... The Bible doesn't teach us to pray for humility. You know what the Bible says? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Do humble things. Just go out and just do it. Get off your pedestal and go do something humble. And so um, maybe as you're listening to this now, you think, okay, cool, right. I'm at church, and I expect to hear this kind of stuff at church, right? <laughs> come here, I expect someone to come here and say, you need to do better at helping people and loving people. And then I get it, I get it. But I kind of feel misled because you told me that this was going to be a series about living a life worth watching. And you told me this is going to be like, that, that it could be this life of adventure. And that somehow by learning from this guy Abraham, I could live this life of adventure. And I'm not seeing how this and that go together. Like, I don't see how being humble, because it seems like if I serve other people, it's actually going to take away from my awesomeness. Because <laughs> I kind of wanted to be more awesome, and you're asking me to be less awesome. And I think that maybe you got it wrong. I think that the reality is that by humbling ourselves, we get the opportunity to encounter God on the deepest level, to encounter the heart of God. Because remember what I said? He's the most humble. 
And in these humble positions and in this humble stature, we can find ourselves in a position where we can finally look into the eyes of a child who just really needed somebody to help them read a book and go, wow, in this moment, I just found God. I thought it was going to be in a really thick book with words I didn't understand. But really, it was when I went down to one of the homeless stations in an evening and I just sat with a guy and listened to a story and found out that he wasn't what I thought he was. And Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these people of the world, you're doing it for me. It's like you're serving me. Remember, we talked about different types of movies. And if, and if there was a movie made about your life, what would it be? Would it be a comedy? Would it be a satire? Would it be? I think if someone made a movie about Abraham's life, it would totally be an action-adventure movie. I'm pretty sure that Sylvester Stallone would play it when he turns 86, which is like next week. Um, and, and it would be awesome, action-adventure, moving, and it would be a movie about a man who had courage and said, it's not about me. The action movies are always about something different. Have you seen action hero movies? You see this action hero movie? Has there ever been an action hero movie about like this guy in a world where men sit on lazy boys, drinking beer and watching football? And then that's the whole trailer and you're like, well, that's pretty boring. That's not an action adventure movie. Is there a, an action adventure movie about, and Sally goes to the spa, she gets her nails did. <laughs> Like, and that's not an action-adventure movie. Is there an action-adventure movie about, as the couple sat quietly in the elegant French restaurant for a two-hour meal that cost $200, and that's the end of the movie. Like, that's a different genre of movie. That's not action-adventure. That's not action-packed. That's not a life worth watching. That's a life that says, serve me, do what I want to do, do what I want. Check out action-adventure. Action-adventure movies are always about a hero, and there's a need, and he is not scared to run in Guns blazing to meet the need of who? Them. Other people. They'll take a bullet for their friend or for someone that they don't know. Because they're living a life of courage that says, it's not about me. In this teaching series, we're talking about faith. And, and I hope that as we continue learning about Abraham's life, um, there's so many principles we could draw out. Last week we talked about the calling. This week we talked about humility and it's not about me. And, and throughout the series, I want to take an opportunity to kind of highlight some people right in our community, right in this little church family right here, and say, listen, this isn't just something about Abraham who lived 4,000 years ago. This is a story that happens every day. And last week I shared some of the story from my family and how, you know, we felt crazy moving away from everything we knew and eventually moving to Wilmington and helping to start this church. But for the rest of the series, I want to highlight some other people's lives. And uh, the life I want to highlight today is a guy that some of you have met, some of you haven't. He's actually a guy who's totally satisfied being serving behind the scenes. Uh, his name is Chris. And Chris uh, didn't grow up Christian and didn't really have a desire to be Christian. <laughs> and even as many as uh, six months or way less ago, was not a Christian. But it discovered that by putting his faith in God and saying God is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do, I said, no, this is, this is a life I definitely want to pursue. This is the question you have to answer. Do you want your life to be an adventure or do you want it to be a routine? Do you want to please God or, or displease him? Do you want to live a full life or an empty one? Do you want to live a life worth watching others or a life worth watching? Do you want to be like Jesus or not? 
It's your choice. And the choice comes down to this. It's a really simple choice. When you say either it's all about me or it's not about me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Thank you so much for just giving us the opportunity to connect with you. I thank you for Chris's story and uh, put him in a place where he can be with people who care to help him grow. Um, I pray right now for anyone in this room who might just be like still skeptical and still curious and that we can be a place where, where they might be able to connect with you. And maybe the simple act of just serving somebody else would, would help them just meet you face to face. Thank you for the love of Jesus, and we pray all in his name. Amen.